Well, let's begin with the quiz here. This is um, from last week. Uh, Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate Apollos. Not directly, does he? I mean, he doesn't say anything negative against Apollos. We assume Apollos was not the source of the problem, but he actually talks about imitating him, imitate Paul and his actions and so forth. Uh, uh, Number two, uh, Paul responds to sarcasm to try and correct, resorts to sarcasm to try and correct the Corinthians' wrong thinking. So yeah, that irony becomes very sarcastic or if it's very strong. Paul says he is sending Titus to them at the end of the chapter. Remember that? No, he doesn't say Titus. Timothy. 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 He says Timothy. Remember? This is the kind of questions that seminary students They call them tricky, you know, because you say Titus. Oh, yeah, Titus. Timothy. No, it's, it's really Timothy. Timothy there. But he does send Titus to some places, doesn't he? And eventually, in 2 Corinthians, he says he's going to send Titus to them. So he does he does send Titus, but not at this time he's sending Timothy. Some at Corinth were opposed to Paul in influencing the whole church. True. At the very end that we saw last time, he makes that difference between some of you. So it's clearly there are some who are influencing the whole church. Paul's writing to the whole church. They're responsible. They're kind of going along with this. So he is talking to the whole church. Five... Paul threatens the Corinthians with discipline. True, he does, doesn't he? He says he may have to come and exercise discipline. Uh, You know, I I may have to come with a rod and find out the power of these arrogant people. Um, But I'd rather send Timothy and have you respond positively and correct this particular problem. So we're looking today in your notes at uh, chapter uh, chapter five, and this is a chapter that uh, that deals with church discipline. Now we pick up a new section here: uh, problems communicated by common rumor. This is chapters five and six. In chapter seven, we'll see Paul will say, "Now concerning the matters you wrote to me about." So from chapter 7 on, he seems to be dealing with matters that were written uh, in a letter. The Corinthians wrote a letter to Paul, and he's responding to that letter. But right now he says, I've heard about these things, apparently from reliable people, um, Chloe, Stephanus, Aristarchus, Apollos, we know they've all been there. And so uh, there's some notes right back there. So uh, these are problems in chapters 5 and 6. Um, in chapter 5, we have uh, the problem of, uh, of this case of incest, and then that gets us into church discipline here. So I say here, in, uh, I say here under Roman numeral 3, problems communicated by common era, with 5.1... Paul clearly turns to a new problem, a case of incest that is being either tolerated or condoned within the church. So there's a slight difference, I suppose. They're 
tolerating it. They're not saying much about it or they're condoning it in the sense that they're going along with it more positively. We don't know exactly what the deal is there. We'll talk about that. But we notice in the preceding chapter, Paul has urged the Corinthians, as we said in the quiz, for them to imitate him and to follow his ways, he says. And he's also threatened those who were puffed up. He uses, the NIV translates, puffed up, who are arrogant. Puffed up against him. And one of the reasons, apparently, is he hasn't been there for a number of years, remember. We said... Uh, this is uh, several years now that Paul has, uh, three or four years since Paul has been back at Corinth. And so although he cannot come in person right now, he's prevented from coming in person, he's in Ephesus, he's learned about this case of incest and, uh, you know, that he would like to be there and deal with this, but he says, I'm going to let this letter function as my coming, as though I were there. He mentions, I'm with you there in spirit. And so it's as though as I was there. Let this letter function in my place. And so Paul is there, he says, in spirit, and you need to pay attention to my judgments. You need to pay attention to what I'm saying. So this chapter is an expression of Paul's apostolic authority in the church, calling them to conform to his ways. So apostles had special authority in the early church. They were representatives of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why the Pope wants to say he is a he is he is a descendant of the apostles. He is a descendant uh, because if you have apostolic accession, the uh, a lot of churches have claim to have apostolic succession. Um, the Episcopal Church claims to have apostolic succession, and uh, the Roman Catholic Church does. So that gives you authority. If you, if you're, if you, the authority, the idea is the, the apostles pass this authority on to you. That's not true. There aren't any apostles, but those apostles had tremendous authority. They were direct representatives of Jesus Christ. They could act for Him. And when Paul threatens to come there and discipline them, that could be very serious. This might, you know, this might be. Uh, Ananias Sapphira kind of thing. We don't know what, what he was threatening there, but Paul has authority to command action. But what's interesting, as we'll see, even in the case of incest, he wants the church to join in that, and that, that has an important uh, aspect for us. It has an important uh, point for us as far as church government, church discipline is concerned, as we'll see. So the first thing he takes up here is uh, immorality in the church. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. That is the first one of these problems communicated by common rumor. The next one involves the question of lawsuits in chapter 6. But this one involves a case of immorality in the church. We see, first of all, the twofold sin in verses 1 and 2. First, the sin of the man, Paul describes. And then in verse 2, the sin of the church. So verse 1 is the sin of the man. He says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. I say here the two sides of the problem are expressed in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 indicates the nature of the sin itself, which is this case of incest. 
Verse 2 moves to what Paul sees as an even greater issue, the church's response or lack thereof to this sin in the church. And so he begins here with this note of horror. It's actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you. Now the word here for sexual immorality, porneia, is a general word for sexual immorality that can cover any kind of illicit sexual behavior. It could be anything. But specifically here, he focuses it down to one kind of illicit sexual behavior, and that's incest in this case. The horror lies in the fact that there is sexual immorality among the Corinthians, but they are taking no action. I say in this instance, the problem is not just sexual immorality in general. The form of sexual immorality they are tolerating is of a kind that was not condoned even among the pagans whose standards were not otherwise not were not uh, otherwise not high. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Well, this is, of course, incest. A man taking a wife or sleeping with a woman other than his mother, living with her in a sexually ongoing relationship. So this, the way this is phrased in the NIV, a man is sleeping with, it does, it, it, and the Greek text indicates this is an ongoing relationship. This is just not, not happened one time. But this person, they are living in this incestuous relationship. Now, incest was condemned, as we see what Paul says here, um, not only in, uh, in uh, Christian or here Christian, but in Jewish and biblical times, culture, but also in even Roman and Greek culture. So they didn't actually tolerate that. Um, the famous uh, people, when they cite Roman law, they'll often cite uh, this fellow Gaius, who was a famous Roman lawyer and wrote books about Roman law and so forth like that. But he says, it's illegal to marry a father or mother's sister, Neither can I marry her who has been my mother-in-law or stepmother. I'm just citing that to uh, indicate that this was common understood, that that was not allowed even among the pagans. They, just, they wouldn't allow that. Paul's language is actually taken directly from Leviticus 18, 7 and 8. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. And that phrase, sexual relations with your father's wife, is exactly the same language here in the Greek as in the Greek translation of the Old Testament there. So um, Paul says that uh, this is an unbelievable thing that's being allowed and not condoned and being condoned by the church when even the pagans, and of course the Old Testament, is very clear on this. I say here, the fact that the woman herself is not mentioned probably clearly demonstrates that only the man was a member of the Corinthian church. Because he doesn't say anything about the woman at all here, so apparently uh, she only he was a member of the church. So we come then, the sin of the man, now we come to the sin of the church. This is what Paul wants to get to. Paul says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? While it's a problem that anyone in the church could have committed incest, the greater problem for Paul is the fact that with this sin in their midst, the Corinthians are proud in spite of this. 
So amazingly, they're proud in spite of this illicit relationship. Now, this kind of arrogance and pride has been mentioned, you know, a number of times. We've seen this. Paul says, "Now, brothers and sisters, I apply these things to myself and Apollos, that you learn not to go, not learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up. That's puffed up. Is sometimes translated proud." First Corinthians four eighteen and nineteen. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I weren't coming. Then I will find out not only how those arrogant people are talking. So there is this arrogance, this pride that Paul is dealing with. And this pride has blinded them, apparently, uh, to the, 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 this man's, you know, uh, true condition. That this is a tor- terrible sin. And it's blinded them to their own sin, to their own condition. So rather than, rather than demonstrating pride, arrogance, they should have been filled with grief, as he says, and you should have put this man out of your fellowship. You should have excommunicated him. You should have exercised church discipline and removed this man from the church. He's in this ongoing relationship with his mother-in-law. They're living together. And uh, it seems clear here that the man has not repented. Remember, that's how church discipline works, uh, we'll talk about. But repentance stops church discipline. Genuine repentance does. But obviously, in this case, Paul, there's no repentance. This this man is not repenting. The church is not repentant. Um, it's difficult to explain, when you read a verse like this, and you are proud, you know, how do you explain the church's attitude to this kind of thing? How do you explain how they could be thinking like this? There's a couple of things we can think about here. On the one hand, we should note that um, religions in the ancient world, in Paul's day, in the Greco-Roman world as it's called, because we have a combination of Greek and Roman culture combined here, we should note that in Paul's day, um, religion did not normally affect moral behavior. Uh, you know, if you were a follower of some, if you if you followed the pagan gods and you made offerings to Zeus or you made offerings to various goddesses, Apollo or so forth, you did it so they wouldn't punish you. You did it so they wouldn't zap you. But you didn't do it because they were morally... They were, they were as immoral as humans. If you read the mythology of the gods, they were committing incest and doing all kinds of sexually immoral things, we would say, among themselves. So the, the gods themselves weren't uh, uh, examples of virtue of any kind like that. So on the one hand, you know, just... Uh, we think about religions today. Islam has a, a moral code, you know, about these kinds of things, of these things. And so Judaism has a moral code, Christianity. We think of religion as kind of enforcing sort of a moral code, maybe. But that was not true of the Greco-Roman religions in general. So, um, you know, that might that might have something to do with it. But I think it's more likely that the reason this man's sin was ignored was because probably he was of some higher social status. 
he was probably, maybe his wealth, his wealth or higher social status. He was also a male. And uh, this is not America. <laughs> this is the ancient world. And males had all the power, and they had all the sexual power. A man could engage in sex outside of marriage all he wanted to, and there were no repercussions, as long as it wasn't adultery. If he committed adultery with, uh, if one senator committed adultery with another senator's wife, then he'd be in trouble. But a senator could commit uh, could commit adultery with a lower class man's wife, and he wouldn't suffer necessarily any penalty. He could commit all the he could commit all the adultery he wanted with slaves his own slaves or other slaves. So there was this power structure, and men were at the top of this structure. And so men commonly had sexual relationships outside of marriage. There was no shame attached to that. There was nothing thought to be wrong with that. Um, now, it didn't apply to incest, as I said, and it didn't apply normally to adultery. If you have a married woman, that presents somewhat of a problem. So uh, here's a man probably of power, probably of importance, and uh, it may be that that's why he was able in this situation to get rid, to, to get away with this. Uh, that's about the only thing we can think of is why this would be just so totally ignored in this situation. Because, you know, we just have to remember that... Uh, a man having sexual relations outside of marriage was nothing un was very common in the New Testament, extremely common. And so, when Christianity comes along and says that's wrong, that's a radical idea. That's a radical idea that a man can't have sexual relations outside of his marriage. That is a radical idea. Well, let's look at uh, the twofold admonition or corrective. In verses 3 through 8. First, for the sin of the man, excommunication. We've already seen that because Paul says, you should have put this man out of your fellowship. So he's already talked about it there, but now he's going to repeat it again. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present, he'll say, hand this man over to Satan in verse 5, and so forth. So Paul here urges excommunication, removal from the church, church discipline, for this man who has committed incest. I say in contrast to the Corinthians, who because they are puffed up have done nothing, not even mourned the man's sin, Paul takes decisive action, but the action cannot be his alone. It's to be a church action carried out where you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present. So this uh, particular passage, this particular text, raises a number of issues. It raises issues about church government. It raises issues about uh, church discipline. Um, 
it raises a number of issues. Let's talk about the church government issue first of all. Because even though Paul is an apostle and he has great authority, he calls upon the church to go along with this excommunication. He just doesn't do it ex cathedra, so to speak, as you would in the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> if the Pope, you know, like the Pope excommunicates Luther, he doesn't ask Luther's congregation, hey, you know, what do you think about this? No, the Pope just issues an excommunication order. So uh, we have, you know, today, roughly three kinds of church government represented in Christian churches. <clears throat> and the New Testament is not perfectly clear about church government. It's, it gives general rules, but it doesn't lay out all the details, you know. And so churches have some freedom here. But here's one form called the Episcopal form of church government. I don't think this type is correct. I think this is wrong. And we can show it from Scripture, but here's a type of church government, the Episcopal Church. Now, the Episcopal Church government is named because the Greek word episkopos means bishop. Episkopos, episcopal, episkopos means bishop. And so the church is ruled by bishops in the Episcopal Church. So the, the kind of church government that has this is the Episcopal Church. <laughs> which is really part of the Church of England, the, the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Another church that has this is the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church is basically Episcopal kind of church government. So what you have is you have the minister of the local church, uh, or ministers. You might be, you might, in a Roman Catholic Church, you might be called a priest, or Anglicans call them priests, or rectors, or ministers. So the Methodist Church has this kind of church government. In the Methodist Church, you have uh, a minister. But over the minister are the bishops. So bishops are over several churches, groups of churches. And they have authority over these churches. Now, I don't know how it works exactly in the Methodist Church today, but when I was growing up, the local minister in the Methodist Church moved around a lot. And he got his new assignment from the bishop. So if he was a good little boy, he would get moved to a bigger church. You know, that was what they were looking at. I want to get that bigger church. So, and I remember, I remember some people I worked with who was in a Methodist church there, and they were complaining because every time the, the new Methodist minister came in, he demanded the parsonage to be redone. It's a lot of money. You know, you redo the parsonage every three years for a new guy, you know, like that. So... You have the bishop, and then you have an archbishop or somebody over them. In the Church of England, you have an archbishop or you have a couple. But the Archbishop of Canterbury is the, well, the queen is technically the governor of the, the queen is the governor of the Anglican Church, but the head clergyman is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so, even in the Roman system, so this developed in the second century. In the second century, there started to be a distinction between the bishop and the presbyter. Now, this is an unscriptural distinction. In the New Testament, three words are used to describe the person we call the pastor. They are the term pastor, they are the term elder, they are the term bishop or overseer. But those three terms are used interchangeably. I won't go into that today, but they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. They just describe different functions of the same office. So this is an unscriptural situation where you've got a bishop over pastors and this kind of thing. 
So um, that's one kind of church government. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is, uh, in this kind of situation, the local church doesn't vote on church discipline. If you're an Episcopal church, I mean, I don't think any Episcopal church disciplines anybody any day. But, <laughs> but if they were going to get rid of somebody, it wouldn't be up to the congregation to decide that. It's not a congregational matter in that sense. They don't have any authority. They don't really have much authority to vote on anything. Now, it depends on the Episcopal church and the Methodist church and so forth. So that's one form, the Episcopal form. That's in the Methodist church. It's in the Roman Catholic church and the Episcopal church. Uh, there are some Pentecostal denominations that have something like this. <coughs> the names may be slightly different. And the other, another form is called the Presbyterian form of church government. It gets its name because the Greek word for elder is presbyter. Presbyter. So we could call Ken or Rich or Larry, we could call them bishops or elders or pastors, you know. Those are all perfectly scriptural terms to describe the same person. But in the Presbyterian system, uh, they have uh, the congregation and they have a session, which is the ministers or the elders in the congregation. The local congregation has a group of elders. That's usually called the session. Now, different churches will have different kinds of Presbyterian. They may use different names. But in the Presbyterian Church USA, for instance, or the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, they'll have generally a set. The session is the local elders in your church. And then they will send people to a higher group called the Presbytery. So a representative from your local elders will go to a higher group called the Presbytery. And then sometimes you have a synod. They'll have, this will send a group to a synod, and then you have a general assembly. So it's, it's a still a little hierarchical and so forth in that sense. And the congregations have more say-so here, maybe a lot, but it's still, uh, the congregation is not the final authority here. Ultimately, it's a general assembly. We would, we could vote then decide what our doctrinal statement is. In fact, I mean, I remember when I came here a couple years ago, I think it was, we voted to change our doctrinal statement because we put a thing in there, was it about same-sex marriage? You remember that? We put a thing in there saying we don't believe in same-sex marriage and so that nobody could come and say, hey, you got to marry us. No, we got to con- our, our constitution says we don't believe, we don't marry people in same-sex relationships. So we can, we can change our constitution but you can't do that here or in an Episcopal church. You've got to go up the ladder here. We operate with what's called congregational church government. And that can, that can vary in how it operates. But the congregation is basically at the top. And this is the congregation calls the pastor. The congregation can dismiss the pastor of the church. The congregation has the ultimate authority. Now, we delegate a lot of that authority because every time they want to buy a pencil here, we don't want to have a congregational vote. Let's, I mean, pencils. Let's, we want to buy 10 pencils or something. So we have a budget. We say you can spend, we have a budget we approve, you can spend this much money. So we have pastors, we have deacons, and so forth. We may be involved with associations too, like we are. We're, we kind of joined that five stone group, remember, that we kind of, we're kind of part of, a limited kind of thing. So you may be involved. But ultimately, in a congregational form. So that's what's important here, because Paul says, 
He says, I'm not doing this by myself. I want the church. The church has got to be involved. So this is an argument. This is an argument for congregational church government. What we see here, that Paul calls upon the church to discipline this particular man. Not just himself, not some hierarchy, but he calls on the church to do this. Um, so it says something about church discipline uh, because Paul calls upon the church to discipline um, and Matthew 18 does the same thing but it also says something about uh, church government, church discipline it says something about church membership actually too doesn't it because there are people who say there is no such thing as church membership we shouldn't have church membership and there are churches that don't have church membership. And there are churches where you go and meet, but there's no formal membership to the churches. But of course, this verse presents a problem. You know, if you don't have church membership, how do you excommunicate somebody from the church? You know, if there's if there's no joining the church, how do you excommunicate them from the church? This clearly shows that there was in some sense a membership in the Corinthian church that a person could be excluded from. There's also Hebrews 13, 17. Have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that they work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So which leaders are we to submit to? Are we to submit to some, some guy who, on the radio in California? No. <laughs> no, we're, we're to submit to the leaders of our church. We're members of a local church. And that's who Paul is talking about, we're to submit to. And who will the leaders give an account for? If there's if no one if, if there's no one that they have in their congregation, if there's no church membership, how are they going to give an account? Pastor Ken doesn't have to give an account for people in Arizona or people in Allen Park necessarily who are not a member of this church. He has to give an account for people in his congregation, in this particular church. <clears throat> So this, this verse has a lot to say about church discipline, a lot to say about church membership in that sense, because church discipline requires church membership, and it suggests, again, a congregational form of church government. Paul says in verse 5, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. To hand over to Satan means to turn the man back into Satan's sphere. In contrast to the gathered church of believers who experience the spirit and power of the Lord Jesus and edifying gifts and loving concern for one another, this man is to be put back into the world where Satan and his principalities and powers hold sway over people's lives to destroy them. So the grammar of this verse suggests that the destruction of his flesh is the anticipated result of putting the man back into Satan's domain while the express purpose of the action is his redemption. So, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paul says, I'm not handing this man over to, to Satan for the purpose of destroying his flesh. That's what I anticipate will happen. I'm hoping will happen. It's the result of what will happen if you excommunicate him. What I want to happen, what the ultimate purpose is, so his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 
So, so that his spirit may be saved, that's the ultimate purpose. That's why the man, Paul wants the man expelled from the church. I say the main question to be determined is what did Paul actually expect as a result of this man being returned to the sphere of Satan's power for the destruction of the flesh? One common view is that the phrase, the destruction of the flesh, refers to physical suffering that would lead ultimately to physical death. So I've heard this, sometimes you might have heard this, that turn this man over so that ultimately God will chasten him and he will die. There's some problems with this view. Paul's ultimate purpose for the man is his salvation, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And it's difficult to see why his death would result in his salvation. Second, nowhere else does Paul express death in terms of destruction of the flesh. Destruction of the flesh is a phrase totally foreign to Christian thinking. And we might think that because we think we're going to die on the body, we'll kind of dissipate and all that. But the Bible never calls about the destruction of the flesh. We're not looking for the destruction of the body. We're looking for the glorification of the body, for the resurrection of the body. The destruction of the flesh is a pagan idea from pagan religions. They were looking forward to that. They, the body's the prison house of the soul. And they talked about that kind of idea. That's not, that's not Christian theology. Here the phrase stands in contrast to the saving of the spirit and is simply foreign to Paul's usage for flesh-spirit contrast to refer to the body as doomed to destruction, but the spirit in a real person as destined for salvation. Such a view stands in contradiction to Paul's express doctrine of the resurrection of the body. The flesh is not destroyed. Third, further in verse 11, the further instruction in verse 11 that the Christians are not to associate with this man, not even to eat with him, implies that no immediate death is in view. Therefore, it seems clear that Paul did not intend for the man to die. This would not rule out, however, some form of remedial suffering. However, what we have in this verse is probably a typical Pauline contrast between flesh and spirit, where flesh denotes the sinful nature. The NIV 84 actually translated it that way. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed. What is sinful may be destroyed and his flesh saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul wants this man put outside of the community so that what is carnal in him may be destroyed. So that ultimately he can be saved. Whether now he is actually saved or lost. So that's what happens in church discipline. We have a person who does, who commits some public sin, whatever that might be, immorality quite often, let's say. It's publicly known. This person refuses to repent. They will not repent. Nope, not have anything to do with that. We just don't allow that person to remain in the church and say nothing about that. We excommunicate them, hoping and praying, because we don't know at that point whether they're saved or lost. Remember, we're all here just professors. We're all professors of faith. And time will tell if we're all possessors. I, mean, I don't have any doubts about him, but I'm just saying, you know, we have, to, we have to continue in the faith. We have to show that our faith is really genuine over time, really. That'll really demonstrate if we're real Christians or not. If we, if we continue in the faith, if we persevere in the faith. So, we have a person who un, who has committed this public sin, whatever it is. They don't repent. We don't know what's going on. 
Are they just a Christian who has fallen into sin, the carnality? They're just disobedient, and God's going to have to do something, work on them, chasing them, you know, we don't know. Or maybe they were never saved to start off with, so we don't really know. And we don't care. We do care, but we don't. it doesn't really make any difference as far as church discipline is concerned. You don't say, we can't discipline that person because I know they're really saved. That, that's not the point. You put them outside the church hoping and praying that they'll come to their senses. That they will come to their senses. So, um, so this would be like crucifying the flesh that Paul talks about. So the intent of this action is the man's salvation. He's not being turned over to Satan for destruction. That's foreign, as I say, to the New Testament idea. But he's being excluded from the Christian community with its life in the spirit, with its sanctifying influence. He's being excluded, hoping that he will come to his senses. Hoping and praying he'll put away his sin. He'll rejoin the church. And if he does that, if he repents and returns, then that will ensure his salvation on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is hoping here. Now when Paul says... um, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, it doesn't mean that he has to wait to be saved. It's just, this is the way Paul often expresses salvation. He often just expresses salvation as a future thing rather than a present thing. That's a little odd for us because when we think about salvation, we say, are you saved? Yes, I am saved. We use the present tense to talk about salvation. When Paul talks about salvation, he only uses the present tense twice. He uses it once back in chapter 1. You know, he says, for those uh, those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness. But for those of us who are being saved, he talks about we are being saved in the present tense. He uses that twice. Twelve times he talks about it as past. We, we were saved. We were saved. But twelve times he talks about it as future, you know, like right here. Now, since we have been justified as blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? For if, we were, for if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So, there's a future aspect. We have been saved from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of the dominion of sin, and we'll be saved from the very presence. So, there's a past, present, and future to Paul's talking about salvation. He's just saying, I want you to excommunicate this man, put him outside the church. He gets out there. Hopefully, if he's a Christian, he'll wake up. He'll say, hey, this is not what I was thinking. You know, what if he has new life, new spiritual life in him, he'll begin to see this. Maybe God will chasten him. God will chasten him if he's a believer. He'll come to his senses and rejoin the church. Well, for the sin of the church, Paul says, the man excommunication, for the sin of the church, purging. So now Paul gives the theological basis for this action of verses 1 and one through 5. <coughs> here's theologically, here's the reason that I'm concerned and this excommunication is necessary. It's because the church needs to be purged of its sin. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? 
So besides the sin of the man, Paul was primarily concerned with the sin of the church itself. He now returns to that concern by picking up the theme of their boasting in verse 2. This boasting of theirs, Paul says, is not good. One commentator says a church exposed to such corruption would be better to sing in a lower key. Paul attempts to show them the absurdity of their boasting. What they should know in this case comes in the form of a proverb. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. The saying is similar to our saying, you know, a bad apple spoils the whole barrel. So in the New Testament, leaven or yeast, as the NIV translates here, becomes a symbol of the process by which an evil spreads insidiously in a community until the whole has been infected by it. I mean, Jesus uses this when he says, be careful, watch out for the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Their evil can spread and contaminate others. The problem was they weren't taking this matter seriously. They weren't taking the evil itself seriously. And they weren't taking seriously the danger of being contaminated by this. I mean, that's why we exercise church discipline. If we have someone committing obvious open sin, I'm just not going to allow them to remain in the church and say, wonderful, we love you and all that kind of stuff. As though this is acceptable behavior. It's not acceptable behavior. It's not allowed. So he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The proverb about yeast in verse 6 naturally suggests imagery from Paul's own Jewish background, namely two religious festivals. The Passover, which was a one-day festival, and then followed by a week of what's called the unleavened bread. As part of the feast, Jews were to clean out or get rid of the old leaven. If you read that in the Old Testament, remember you had the Passover, then you clean out your house, get rid of the leaven. In the context, this context, it refers to the removal of the incestuous man in verse 5. So Paul says, you know, you need to get rid of this evil, this sin, this leaven among you. Um, so that you may be a new unleavened batch. So you can be a pure church without this evil among you. I say in applying this imagery, however, Paul expresses himself in a way that is foreign to his own understanding of the doctrine of salvation. So he immediately qualifies it with, as you really are, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Paul has many imperatives in his writings, things that we Christians must do. But even though these commands must be obeyed, they're not simply legalistic requirements through which we can gain favor with God. We obey because of God's previous work of grace in our lives. God has done something for us, what's called the indicative. It's often used by uh, Bible teachers to say, what God does for us, that's the indicative. Therefore, we obey him, what is called the imperative. The imperative reminds that we are to become what we are, the indicative, like Ephesians 5.8. For you were once darkness, but now you are in the light, you are light in the Lord. There's the indicative. There's what God has done. You were once darkness. You were unsaved, but now you are light. Now you've been saved. You have new spiritual life. There's the indicative. Here's the imperative that follows. 
Therefore live as children of light. So the imperative, these commands that were issued are always based upon looking back to our salvation, looking back to what God has done for us. So right at the point in Paul's argument where the imperative sounds as if it comes first, get rid of the old so that you may be new. That sounds like legalism, you know. Do this and you'll be saved. He reminds them that what they must become is what they already are by the grace of God, a new unleavened batch as you really are. Become what you are, Paul says. God's new loaf in Corinth. Still keeping the imagery of Passover, but shifting over to the second fest ritual, Paul proceeds to explain how they became this God's new loaf. For indeed, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, even Christ. The slaying of the lamb is what led the Jews to being unleavened, so too with us, Paul says. Our lamb has been sacrificed through his death. We have received forgiveness from the past and freedom for the new life in Christ. Verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul now brings this part of his argument to his logical conclusion. The Corinthians are to remove the incestuous man from the church, which is like cleansing the house of leaven, in order that they might become what they are, God's new loaf in Corinth. What makes them God's people is the sacrifice of our Passover lamb, Christ himself. Still keeping the imagery of the feast, let us keep the festival, Paul broadens the application of the death of Christ to the Christian life as a whole. The present tense of the verb that's translated, let us keep the festival, speaks of a continuous celebration of the feast. The whole Christian life as a celebration of the work of Christ on our behalf. But what is the Christian equivalent to the Jewish celebration? In the first instance, it reflects the prolonged seven-day festival during which the Jews were forbidden to eat anything unleavened. In the same way, on the basis of the crucifixion of Christ, God's people are to keep on an ongoing feast of the celebration of God's forgiveness by holy living. They are to celebrate their new life in Christ minus the old leaven. This at least includes the elimination of the kinds of sexual immorality represented by the excluded man. But now the old leaven is further qualified in terms of malice and wickedness. So the death of Christ has freed us from the power, the dominion of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, Paul says in Romans 6. Thus we are to live as those who have been set free. The Christian life, which can be called unleavened, is also described in terms of sincerity of truth. Sincerity and truth. These, these words uh, don't uh, generalize Christian behavior in quite the same way as the two negatives do, malice and wickedness. Uh, in fact, they move toward the motivation of our behavior when he talks about with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we're talking about, Paul says, you want to move towards behavior that's authentic. There's no sham. There's no deceit. The Corinthians are to become what they are. You are God's holy temple in Corinth. Become that holy temple. Remember, I should have mentioned this before, but we saw this back in chapter 3 where Paul says, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? That was back in chapter 3. Remember, he used the analogy of the building and then he went right to the temple. I should have mentioned then that 
when he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? He's talking about the church as a whole. That's a plural you. He's not talking about you as an individual here. He's saying you, the church, are a temple. We, you know, the local church is a temple. Now, in chapter 6, we'll see he applies that metaphor to the individual Christian. Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? The body is a temple, but that's the individual. But back in chapter 3. So here he's saying, get rid of this unleavened, this man, so that you can be what you should be, sincere, authentic, truthful. Well, now he has a necessary explanation, chapters 5, 9 through 13. It might appear that Paul is moving on to a new topic in these verses because he begins to discuss a misunderstanding of a former letter written by himself to the church. But this is only partly the case. Paul is resolving an issue from a former letter to be sure, but one that is closely related to the present concern. And we'll see that clarification in verse 11. But um, what Paul is talking about here is he's attempting to forbid any association with a man who calls himself a brother or sister but is sexually immoral Uh, and that's what verses 1 through 8 was about we had a man in the church who called himself a Christian you know he called he claimed to be a Christian but he was sexually immoral That's that's the kind of discipline Paul was talking about But some have apparently, on purpose or ignorance, it's hard to know. Sometimes it's hard to believe it's ignorance. Sometimes it's believed it's on purpose. Have misconstrued his words. So we see uh, a former letter misunderstood. We say misunderstood. Is it on purpose? Uh, I don't know. 5.9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul had written a previous letter. Paul had written a previous letter, and in that letter, he said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. I'm not talking about the average Joe walking down the street here. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. Paul is still dealing with the church's failure to do something about the incestuous man. These verses tell us that the particular failure is related to their misunderstanding of a former letter, particularly the command not to associate with sexually immoral people. Remember we said that when we started this this, uh, this study back in day uh, week one that there was a letter, letter number one that Paul wrote from Ephesus that's not in the Bible, that Paul mentions right here. I wrote to you in my letter, that is my former letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now he's writing... Because they haven't, they're still associating. There's this man committing incest. They haven't taken his word seriously. <coughs> we wonder how their misunderstanding arose. And especially, especially a misunderstanding that implied that he was talking about not associating with the people of this world. I mean, you know, when Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the immoral people, could they really think that this is, uh, Amish, we're talking about an Amish situation here where we just draw totally and, you know, is that what Paul meant? And we don't associate, we have any associations. Could they really think that? Um, No, it's possible that we're talking about some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming. So maybe people were twisting Paul's words on purpose here. 
these who were opposed to Paul. Most likely, by the time Paul's letter had reached the church, some people were already at work, you know, urging that Paul's understanding is not the right understanding. This is kind of ambiguous. We don't have to follow this. Maybe they try to discredit him. Um, How can he possibly mean that we are to associate with sexually immoral people because we have to meet these people in the marketplace? We have to live in Corinth and rub shoulders with them, you know, that kind of thing. And as he elaborates in verse 11, he says, I I surely didn't mean that. You know, he'll tell us that. (laughs) In any case, I say here, Paul is ready to clarify, first by telling them what he did not intend, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. To that group, he also adds the greedy and swindlers or idolater. So it seemed that Paul's former letter dealt with three issues. First is the immorality. He talked about that in that first letter that we don't have, which he has addressed now in this case of the incestuous man. Second is the greedy and swindlers. The word greedy means not just to desire what is not one's own, but often carries the sense of carrying through on that desire to the point of defrauding or taking advantage of someone else. And one way this avarice or this greed is expressed is through sometimes swindling people. He says greedy, you know, and swindlers, that kind of thing. So maybe somebody's greedy and they're swindling. Paul is probably anticipating chapter 6 here. In chapter 6, Paul will talk about taking each other to court. And we'll come back to this point here. It may involve something like that is going on here. Third, the third involves associating with idolaters, which in this case means eating meals in pagan temples. Paul's going to deal with that issue in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Well, he has a further clarification in verse 11. Now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander or drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Whatever the reason for this misunderstanding with the former letter, Paul will now make sure that there will be no uncertainty about his position, by outlining his former position in explicit details. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who acts in the ways uh, spoken of in the former letter. So Paul is not advocating that only sinless people can be members of the church, but he's concerned about those who persist in a sinful lifestyle. Those who persist in a sinful lifestyle. Those who... Uh, claim to belong to Christ, but continue in their sin, have no repentance. We're not talking here about people who who uh, struggle with sin, but we're talking about people who are not making any attempts to put off their former lifestyle. Remember Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God's coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the Creator. To the fourfold sins in verse 10, two more are now added, slander and drunkard. The word slander covers all kinds of formal abuse, malign, reviled. Drunkard refers to kind of a person who engages in drunkenness and revelry, carousing. The final prohibition, do not even eat, implies probably more than the Lord's table. 
which would be obvious. The word eat here probably means social intercourse of any kind. So how do we carry this out in a local church? So if a person is disciplined, I think Paul is saying, it's pretty obvious we're not going to let them take the Lord's Supper, but Paul, I think, is talking about ordinary social intercourse here. So how would that work? Well, it would mean that I normally would not be meeting with this person on a friendly basis as I once did, unless I had some redemptive purpose in mind. Now, that wouldn't kill family relations. Let's say I had a brother in this church who committed some, uh, uh, committed adultery. And he, he wouldn't repent, he wouldn't do anything. We removed him from our church here, my brother, my physical brother. Well, I would have a different relationship with him than you would. Because I don't, I'm not giving up the family responsibilities. I would still meet with him. I wouldn't, I'd still go to Thanksgiving dinner with him. And those kinds of things. It wouldn't, I wouldn't give up the family. But my purpose wouldn't be to say things are just like they always were. And you might have lunch with my brother. But your purpose there would be to say, hey, I'm praying for you. This is terrible what you've done. You know, we're praying. We're hoping you'll see the light. You know, we'd have a redemptive purpose. But we're not just going to go golfing and do everything we once did as though nothing has happened. As though everything is correct. That's what Paul is talking about. Well, finally, we have a simple explanation and application. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. With these short sentences, Paul concludes his argument. First, in verse 12, they are two rhetorical questions about which the church does and does not judge. And these questions are given their appropriate responses in the two statements of verse 13. Neither he nor they are to pass sentence on the people of the world and their present existence. The reason is simple. God will judge those outside. But for now, the church takes the world as it finds it. But this doesn't mean the church has no responsibility to speak out to the evils of the world. We can speak out and say abortion is wrong. This is wrong. But we have to take the church as we find it. In that sense, the church has nothing to do with the world. Exactly the opposite, however, must prevail within the Christian church itself. Are you not to judge those inside? This, of course, is what the entire passage has been arguing. And so Paul quotes Deuteronomy 17.7 at the end. Expel the wicked person from among you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you, Father, for the gift of life and the power of the Spirit that lives within us who is working to transform us and to cause us to be more conformed to Christ. We pray that we will do as Paul says and put off these old things and put on these new holy things. And we pray, Father, we'll be faithful in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.